In the last post, we talked about why we need options for music education that are as accessible as possible to all of our learners. We discussed the three brain networks that impact how students show up in our classrooms, and those are the affective, the recognition, and the strategic networks. And we also talked about some general strategies to consider when it comes to universal design for learning. So if you have not yet read that blog post, I would encourage you to uh, press pause or zoom back to it when you get a chance. Today, we will zoom in on the affective brain networks. In this model of brain research, the affective networks are responsible for the level of engagement that students experience in learning, as well as, you know, their motivation um, to become a lifelong musical learner. So we will look at some concrete examples of providing multiple means of engagement in elementary general music. Now, this is by no means an exhaustive list, but um, I think it will be helpful just to get us started in thinking through some of these practical applications of universal design for learning. So let's jump in. So the question that some of us might be asking is, do I really need to add more means of engagement? Because for some of us, universal design for learning is a framework that we learned in a recent teacher training course, like um, an undergrad or a graduate uh, class. But for many of us, we are learning about this approach after many years already in the classroom and maybe many years thinking about these topics in a different way. So when we hear about a new approach in education, we might wonder if we really need to add just one more thing to our list of things to talk about. So how will we know if students are being provided enough means of engagement? The answer might be more simple than we think, and it doesn't come down to what our principals say we need to do or um, a checklist from a PD session or a trend in education. The answer is very simple. We are just going to look at the students. If students are off task and unengaged in learning, it might be time to try out some new methods of recruiting interest and motivation and self-regulation. If there are students who struggle to participate in musical tasks for whatever reason that is or whatever reason we perceive that to be, we can brainstorm more ways to effectively and musically engage them. We can also ask students about their experiences in our classroom and we can listen to their feedback. So if their answers show that they don't feel particularly interested in our curriculum, our way of teaching, our level of ownership that, you know, that we are giving them, um, it might be time to explore some new ideas. Because our goal here is for students to be purposeful and motivated and musical in our classrooms. Providing multiple means of engagement is how we can partner with our elementary musicians so that they make as much music as possible. Let's go over the guidelines for adding multiple means of engagement. The first idea is recruiting interest because we like to learn about things that are interesting. So how can we frame or rework our presentations or the learning environment to nurture more interest? That's number one. The second thing is 
sustaining effort and persistence because musicianship takes practice over time. So how can we help students be attentive through the whole process? And then the third idea is self-regulation. When we self-regulate our emotional response, responses, we contribute to a classroom environment that is conducive for learning. So how can we help students regulate their behavior so that they are set up for success? All of these guidelines are from the Universal Design for Learning Guidelines from cast.org. So you can go there to uh, look at some of these in more detail. Because these come from an organization like CAST, it means that they are going to be kind of edu-speak, but we're going to break it down <laughs> and translate it into music language. So let's jump in to the first guideline, Recruiting Interest. Again, we really like to learn about things that we find interesting. And there are ways that we can partner with students to engage them in classroom activities. Now, a lot of this has to do with the repertoire we select, but it also has to do with the student roles in the classroom. And what I mean by student roles is, are students active participants in musical tasks, or are they only being asked to follow teacher directions? Here are some ideas for adjusting our learning environment to be a little bit more interesting to students. The first thing is uh, optimize individual choice and autonomy. That's the big umbrella. So within that, we can provide learners with as much discretion and autonomy as possible by providing choices. That's from CAST. Now let's talk about uh, in Victoria Bowler land, how that gets translated. <laughs> when we build lessons with student choice embedded, we are not only strengthening our overall musicianship expectations, but we have put students in a better place to take ownership of their own learning. Now, this starts with clear goals uh, in our curriculum planning. And from there, from those clear goals, we can be flexible and creative about how students will show their learning. And there are so many opportunities for student choice in the music room, no matter what that music room looks like right now in terms of hybrid or in-person, socially distant or virtual. Students can choose whether they will tiptoe or slide to their learning spot. They might choose to clap the rhythm of the words or pat a steady beat. They could choose to come in either singing or clapping first or second in a two-part round. They might choose to play an ostinato or or clap the rhythm of the main song. So let's imagine that we want to expand um, students' musical vocabulary, their melodic vocabulary, by exploring, exploring new melodic patterns that use low law in the extended pentatone. So low law in the extended pentatone. Early in this vocabulary building phase, we are going to want students to show the melodic contour of a specific pattern that has that target melodic element. Students can choose if they are going to show that melody through movement or through body percussion. And since both options in this scenario move students towards our learning objective, we don't need to dictate how students show the melodic contour because both pathways give us evidence that we need to move forward. If this is kind of new for you, I have a blog post on musical choice and specifically in the context of steps that we will take before improvisation. So you um, can just Google Victoria Bowler musical choice and grab that. 
The second idea under optimizing individual choice and autonomy is allowing learners to participate in the design of classroom activities and academic tasks. Okay, that's the edge speak. Let's translate it. Students can help us create arrangements for sharing activities like informances or other presentations. They could also help create arrangements just for fun, you know, to be performed in class. If letting students create class arrangements is new for you or your students, a super easy way to get started is with rhythmic building blocks. When we work with a folk song, students can use rhythmic building blocks to create their own rhythms in small groups or individually. And with those rhythms created, we can decide as a class if those rhythms are going to be the B section that the class all plays together, or if a few of them will be the ostinati that happen throughout the whole song. So again, if you are new to this idea of class arrangements, you give students options of rhythmic building blocks. They arrange them in any order that they want. And then as a class, we're just going to vote. Will we all play our rhythmic building block patterns as the B section, or are we going to choose a few of them to be the ostinato patterns throughout the song? I mentioned um, an elementary informants, and if you are interested in hearing more about that, you can also Google Victoria Bowler informants to see a two-part blog series about um, how those might be structured. Okay, all of that was optimizing individual choice and autonomy. The next idea is to optimize relevance, value, and authenticity. So one way to do that is in EduSpeak, vary activities and sources of information so that they can be age and ability appropriate. Okay, in music, um, among other criteria, the repertoire we engage with in the music room should be repertoire that we expect students to enjoy. We can absolutely select repertoire that is age appropriate and then see how students respond over time. And then the other piece here is that students can suggest repertoire that we use in the music room. Using student provided repertoire requires more time and creativity from us for sure. But in terms of this lens of um, multiple means of engagement, the buy-in that we get from students when we do that makes it a worthwhile endeavor if this is something that we are pursuing. I have a blog post on resources for creating a grade level song list. So you can just Google um, Victoria Bowler grade level song list and read more about that. Another idea in the same category is to design activities so that learning outcomes are authentic, communicate to real audiences and reflect a purpose that is clear to the participants. When our musical tasks are authentic, they can be transferred to real world scenarios outside of the music classroom. In an active musical learning environment, students learn by musicking, that is to say, by actively embodying musical ideas, and not just by being in the room when the teacher talks about musical ideas. This emphasis on active musicking engages students in authentic, real-world activities. When we start to think beyond things like worksheets and memorizing the lines and spaces of the staff, so many new possibilities open up like singing and playing instruments and speaking and moving and reading and writing and improvising and composing, arranging and listening. I have a blog post on creating an active music curriculum that you can get through a Google search. The third idea under the big umbrella of recruiting interest is to minimize threats and distractions. 
One way we can do that is to create an accepting and supportive classroom climate. So in music, from the first day of class, we can make sure that our classrooms are safe places to learn. Our music classrooms should absolutely be places where students make mistakes and where those mistakes are welcomed and encouraged and where forward motion is praised. And students will probably need some coaching on the specific language to use in group work or in other classroom sharing activities when peers perform musically because we want that feedback to be process oriented. I mentioned the first day of music class, and you can find those lesson plans just by Googling Victoria Bowler, first day of music. Another idea here in Edgespeak is to vary the social demands required for learning or performance, the perceived level of support and protection, and the requirements for public display and evaluation. <laughs> okay, that's a lot. Um, let's break that down. Music Engagement requires some vulnerability, both for us and on the part of our students. And I'm thinking specifically of when it comes to some of these performance tasks like singing or improvising. Because we authentically learn by active musicking, it's possible for the performance aspect of our classrooms to cause some nervousness in some of our students, depending on how we structure the activity. And this makes a lot of sense when we compare music learning to something like a traditional math class. When students learn math in a traditional classroom, they are often, if you think about it, they are often sitting at their desks while the teacher stands up front and talks about math. And then when it's time to show their knowledge, students are most often writing down their answers on a worksheet. And so that adds a layer of protection. You know, if a student has trouble with a specific math skill, their peers don't necessarily know in that moment. In contrast, if we compare that to an active music room, students are performing musical tasks to show their knowledge. And so depending on, again, how we structure the activity, this emphasis on authenticity can also cause some anxiety for our students um, because they can be concerned that if they don't perform a skill well, everyone will know. So we can help minimize threats and distractions by scaffolding skills well and lesson planning with intention so that students aren't put in a vulnerable position before they're ready. So when it's time to do a skill like singing or improvising, what I mean by scaffolding and lesson planning well is that we can practice as a whole class and then we can inner hear our answers in our heads. We can practice with small groups and then we can practice with partners all before we're asking students to perform alone. If that's even something that we're going to ask them to do that specific day. When it comes to improvisation, I know that there is a lot to kind of think through and tackle. Um, I have a blog post called Improvisation Tips for Elementary General Music that you can find with a Google search. Okay, so all of this that we have talked about so far <laughs> is just one guideline. That guideline is recruiting interest. And so the big takeaway here is that we can offer students choices we can make learning active, and we can scaffold tasks strategically to engage more student interest. Let's move on to the next big idea, which is sustaining effort and persistence. When we learn a new skill, we need a combination of challenges that move us forward in our learning and then assistance that helps us meet those challenges. 
Thoughtful practice over time and internal motivation are both necessary to create lifelong musical learners. So how can we partner with students so that they are self-aware and motivated to persevere as they build musicianship over time? And because we see, on average, ages 5 through 11 or so, the answers to this question are going to change as students change with their age and their interests and their life experiences. Under this really broad category of sustaining effort and persistence, there are a couple subcategories like heightened salience of goals and objectives, vary demands and resources to optimize challenges, and foster collaboration and community, and lastly, increase mastery-oriented feedback. So let's jump into those. Um, Again, first in kind of the edge you speak, and then we'll break it down. We'll translate it for us. (laughs) So the first thing is heightened salience of goals and objectives. We can engage learners in assessment discussions of what constitutes excellence and generate relevant examples that connect to their cultural background and interests. Okay. Students can be involved in the creation of goal setting and evaluation in the music classroom. Uh, So for example, in preparation for an informants or another sharing event, students can think about what an excellent final product would be, and they can come up with a list of criteria to know how they've reached the goal. Class-created rubrics can be really helpful to get the whole group of musicians on the same page here. I have a course on active embedded assessment in elementary general music, and that course is designed to help you create assessments that feel like play and still move learning forward. So again, that's a Google search away if you want to um, learn more about that option. Um, Victoria Bowler active embedded assessment course. Another idea is to use prompts or scaffolds for visualizing the desired outcome. As we work toward an aural picture of musicianship, there are so many ways that we could achieve whatever that desired outcome is. We could listen to field recordings or the teacher could demonstrate. We could listen to peer ideas. We could interhear the desired vocal sound. Um, We could mime playing an instrument while we interhere, or we could map out the form of our arrangement on the board. So again, there are many possible um, opportunities to provide an aural and a visual image of our final musical goal. It does not always need to be the teacher talking to direct it. The teacher saying, okay, now make sure that you raise your soft palate and stand up straight and tall, right? (laughs) Um, Or the teacher saying, now let's all make sure we stay together in this rondo. We can provide some different ways to um, scaffold and visualize that musical outcome. Next, we can vary demands and resources to optimize challenge. That is the next uh, big idea in this second big idea. So here's what we mean by that in Edgespeak, vary the degrees of freedom for acceptable performance. Oh man, in the music class, we are all over this because when we are clear on our long range and our short term learning goals, we get clarity on how much room we have for individual choice within those learning parameters. So for example, if students are asked to perform a B section with rhythmic building blocks using patterns that create that contain a beat and a beat subdivision, there are so many options embedded here. So For example, just with this rhythmic building block, with these specific rhythms, just with this activity, are students going to perform on text or on rhythm syllables? Hmm. Will they clap the rhythms as they speak? 
Could they put the rhythms on body percussion? Will they add movements for each rhythm item? Um, do all the cards need to have two beats or are some going to have four? Will students come up with the rhythms on their own or as a class, or is the teacher going to provide them? So again, we can consider what parameters we are going to set as the teacher and what freedoms within those parameters students are going to have. And that is easiest after we clarify our specific learning goals. If this idea of long range planning and then short term planning is kind of new for you, you can Google ultimate guide to lesson planning in the music room, uh, Victoria Bowler. And that series has a breakdown of this process. Next, we can emphasize process, effort, improvement in meeting standards as alternatives to external valuation and competition. Okay. This one is where things get kind of dicey. Um, when, when students are in music class, why should they be interested and engaged in our learning tasks? Is it to see their class score on a behavior chart? Is it the threat of punishment or the potential for a reward? Because those are both two sides of the same threat-based coin. We already talked about how a thoughtful practice over time and internal motivation are what creates lifelong musical learners. So we can help de-emphasize stickers and charts and pizza parties and competition by emphasizing student progress and effort and improvement. So instead of, yes, your class is winning the good behavior competition between all of the third grade classes, we are one step closer to free choice day in music. We can try a script that's more like, you know what? I think our class rondo sounds even more expressive after today's class. Let's compare the audio I just recorded with the audio that I recorded three classes ago and see what we think. After we listen, talk to your shoulder partner about what we might do next. One scenario here is emphasizing external evaluation and competition. The other scenario is emphasizing process, effort, and improvement. Another big idea here is fostering collaboration and community. Because our classrooms are not isolated, elementary music students have a lot to learn from each other, and it's important that they leave our classrooms able to listen and collaborate with other people. So here are some ideas under that category. We can create cooperative learning groups with clear goals, roles, and responsibilities. Okay, in music, that means that in an active music classroom, information is shared from the teacher to the student for sure, uh, but also from the student to the teacher and from student to student and from students to the community. This is all part of de-emphasizing the teacher as the only source of musical knowledge and reframing that teacher's role to be more of the musical guide while students construct their own knowledge. So students can work in small groups to figure out how to play a melodic pattern on a barred instrument by ear. Or they could create a group ostinato. Uh, or they could brainstorm ideas for a B section or discuss the meaning of a text in a song or a book or a story. All of these ideas are ways that we can use cooperative learning groups in the music classroom. 
And then along with that, we can create expectations for group work because just like us, young musicians can have conflict when they work in groups. So what are the expectations for listening to ideas? What are the expectations for trying out those ideas? When we create rubrics or checklists for students to work towards in small groups, that can be really helpful to establish boundaries and goals. The last idea in this big category of sustaining effort and persistence is increasing mastery-oriented feedback. And this is because musical skills are built, not born. Despite the very widespread myths about innate talent or innate creativity, our students become better musicians when they are motivated to thoughtfully practice over time. All of us are motivated to keep learning when we feel like we're making progress. So one of the teacher's jobs in the universal design learning classroom is to help students approach challenges through mastery-oriented feedback. So here are some ideas for that. We can provide feedback that encourages perseverance, focuses on the development of efficacy and self-awareness, and encourages the use of specific supports and strategies in the face of challenge. Okay, that was a lot of edge speak. Let's break it down. Um, when students encounter challenges to things like pitch matching, we can give them specific supports like vocal sirens or inner hearing the melodic contour while they move or singing it with a friend. So instead of grace, you have such a beautiful voice. We can shift to grace. Did you hear how your voice changed after we did those sirens together? One of these implies an innate ability. The other implies the action of building skills over time through strategic support and self-awareness. Along the same lines, another option is to provide feedback that models how to incorporate evaluation, including identifying patterns of errors and wrong answers, into positive strategies for future success. All right, here's our concrete example. So let's say that in preparation for an informants or another sharing scenario, students are working as a whole class, um, uh, an arrangement of engine engine number nine. And in this arrangement example, let's say that one group is moving like a train, one group is playing the steady beat on two bonos, and one group is playing the rhythm of the words on rhythm sticks. When we have all of these things going on, it is possible to get off from the steady beat around the room. When that happens, we can say something like, hmm, let's do that again and listen across the room while we perform. When we're done, we will tell someone next to us what we notice. So students perform the arrangement again and then discuss with their shoulder partner and then share a few comments with the class. And if steady beat is identified as a problem, students can brainstorm solutions that the teacher writes on the board. So examples might be that students suggest that we interhere and, and pretend to play our part. Maybe they suggest that we play quieter, or maybe they suggest that we watch the other groups and really pay attention to them while we're performing. Things like that. Students are going to choose their strategy there, try the ensemble arrangement again, and then discuss whether or not it helped. The emphasis here is on identifying a, an error and turning that into an opportunity to develop strategies. 
There is a specific rhythm versus beat arrangement that you might find really helpful if this idea is kind of new to you, or if you're just looking for another idea um, for rhythm versus beat. And that arrangement is on my Instagram. Um, so if you just jumped to my Instagram and look for uh, Instagram reels, you will find that very quickly. Okay. So here is the takeaway for this um, next big guideline of sustaining effort and persistence. The main idea here is that we can create safe learning environments where students create goals, explore freedom within boundaries and get process oriented feedback from us. So far in this post, we have talked about two out of the three guidelines for creating multiple means of engagement. We have talked about recruiting interest. So, um, because we like to learn about things that are interesting, we've talked about reworking our presentations to nurture more student interest. And we've talked about sustaining effort and persistence because musicianship takes practice over time. So we want to help students be attentive throughout the entire learning process. Now let's talk about the last uh, pillar of this multiple means of engagement idea, which is helping students with self-regulation. Students absolutely differ in how engaged they are in a specific task and how aware they are of their behavioral reactions to emotion. We can build in checks to strategically help students monitor their behavior and their motivation and their engagement. And then the more we circle back to these internal motivation checks, the more opportunities we provide for students to be successful. Under this big idea of providing options for self-regulation, uh, some kind of sub-ideas in EduSpeak are to promote expectations and beliefs that optimize motivation, facilitate personal coping skills and strategies, and to develop self-assessment and reflection. Okay, let's jump into those ideas. The first one is promote expectations and beliefs that optimize motivation. It can really be challenging for some students to wrestle with their current musical skill level in comparison to where they want to be. And if you're like me, you can identify with that tension that students feel. It is possible for students to act out of frustration when musical tasks are beyond their reach the very first try. So one of the things we can do is provide prompts, reminders, guides, rubrics, checklists uh, that focus on evaluating the frequency of self-reflection and self-reinforcements. Okay, let's look at one example. <laughs> it can be helpful for students to have checks with group work or independent work so that they are not alarmed or panicked when time is up. Because even if we tell them, you know, you have two more minutes left, what if we're not done in two more minutes? What if I am panicking because I'm not finished with this task and you are telling me that I have to move on? This is an idea that I adopted from my ORF level one instructor, the fabulous Alicia Knox. When students are working in groups or individually and that individual group work, whatever it is, when that time is nearing its end, the teacher is going to play an attention grabber, like a bell or a clap or chimes or whatever. And the students hold up the fingers, their fingers for the number of minutes they still want to complete the task. 
So the teacher is going to scan the numbers quickly. And then um, after you read the room, you just share how many more minutes, if any, students are going to work before moving on to the next lesson. When we ask students what they need, we give them an opportunity to mentally check in on their own musical progress and then make a statement on what to do next. Another idea along this uh, same topic is support activities that encourage self-reflection and identification of personal goals. Again, as we work on individual or group assignments like compositions, it can be helpful for students to create their own goals for independent work. And this is especially true for extended projects like compositions, where you might be working on them over, um, you know, several lessons for about 10 minute increments. So when you're working on a composition or another extended project, students can turn their paper over and then fill in the blank to two really simple prompts. Today, I blank. And you just write what you worked on. Next class, I will blank. And you just write in the next steps. Students can also discuss these goals with a partner before writing. And this practice keeps the class focused on the next steps. In one specific um, melodic activity, I have an ORF arrangement for Bluebird Bluebird, which involves a student composition. So if you are kind of thinking through what this process might look like, you can just Google ORF arrangement Bluebird Bluebird Victoria Bowler and uh, kind of look through that blog post for some ideas. Okay, we talked about um, promoting expectations and beliefs that optimize motivation. Let's move on to facilitating personal coping skills and strategies. Because we all have times that we feel sad or nervous or angry in music class, all of us, teachers and students, <laughs> and managing our responses to emotions may come easier to some students than others, but there are ways that we can help all of our students move toward managing their emotionally reactive behavior, not the emotions, the behavior. The first thing is to provide differentiated models, scaffolds, and feedback for appropriately handling subject-specific phobias and judgments of natural aptitude. Okay, we've talked about this idea, this false belief of natural aptitude already. Um, when we feel uncomfortable or anxious or embarrassed, it is totally normal to behave in a way that helps us avoid those feelings. Often for our students, that behavior is not conducive to the classroom environment that we as teachers are trying to build. So for example, when a student feels uncomfortable or anxious or embarrassed, they might react by throwing mallets or yelling or shutting down or using um, voices or gestures that are intended to be comical or attempting to leave the learning space altogether or using hurtful words to peers or to us. And, and, you know, other guidelines in this post have mentioned the importance of scaffolding musical tasks and offering choices so that students are challenged appropriately at the level that they need. Beyond this, we can also help students clarify their wording. We can model this wording for them. We are going to shift from the belief of I'm not good at music because that's a thought that can trigger unproductive emotional behavior responses. 
We can shift I'm not good at music to the actual reality, which is something like I didn't play the 16th notes in the way I wanted this time, but what if I try with a slower tempo? That is a thought that can move more towards positive musical behavior. So this is not about trying to convince students that they shouldn't be upset when they don't play the 16th notes the way they wanted or you know whatever the musical task is. It is about shifting the behavioral reaction to the emotion so that we're moving in a positive direction with positive behavior and positive musicianship. Okay, that was facilitating personal coping skills and strategies. Let's look at developing self-assessment and peer reflection. One way we can do this is to offer devices, aids, or charts to assist individuals in learning to collect and chart and display data from their own behavior for the purposes of monitoring changes in those behaviors. Wow, that is a mouthful. (laughs) Um, Let's look at just one example of that, one possible example. I taught a particular musician um, for a few years who found it very difficult to go through class without verbal outbursts. And the nature of these outbursts were harmful to the learning environment for the whole class. And I wanted, and definitely the student as well, and I wanted to partner with this student to see how we could find alternative ways of expression. And the first step for me was just helping this musician see what I was talking about when I referred to verbal outbursts, because again, this is about self-awareness. We want students to have the monitoring skills so that they are aware of their behavioral responses and their inclination for behavioral responses even before they happen. So this student and I, we came up with a system together where this musician was going to keep track via written tallies for the number of outbursts in class. There was no punishment for more tallies. There was no reward for fewer tallies. We're just getting information. And at the end of the class, this musician would stay after, and we would talk about the numbers very quickly before going to baseball practice. And in those conversations, we actually didn't talk about the numbers that much. We mostly talked about what the student thought about class that day and how the baseball practice was going. And these outbursts lowered dramatically in these few weeks. And the other huge benefit that also helped the situation was that my relationship with this student really improved. The whole idea of universal design for learning is that different students need different things from us. So I am not necessarily suggesting that you go to a tally system for every behavioral challenge in the classroom, but this is one example of helping students monitor their own behavior so that we can move towards adjusting those behaviors. Upper elementary is a very different ball game than lower elementary. And so if that is something that you're interested in kind of thinking through a little bit more, I have a blog post on upper elementary classroom management for music teachers that you can get with a Google search. Here is the big takeaway with this pillar of providing options for self-regulation. The big idea here is that we can help students monitor their thoughts and behaviors by incorporating regular check-ins and opportunities for reflection.
All right, we have talked about a lot of different angles for providing multiple means of engagement in elementary general music. This is the first of the universal design for learning pillars. Um, and the first of the three that we are going to be applying to elementary general music. I want to stress again that this is by no means an exhaustive list. The purpose is just to kind of get us thinking about some practical applications of universal design for learning in elementary general music. As teachers, we are learners first, and that is absolutely true for me as well. When we learn about a new framework, we have a really fun opportunity to try on new ideas, new philosophies, new practices, and sometimes we also get to connect those new philosophies to actions that we're already doing in the classroom. So for most of us, we are going to be already implementing some of these ideas. So maybe those are things that we decide to highlight moving forward, or maybe there are some things that we could tweak just a little bit and experiment on the types of engagement that we see from our students. If you have thoughts about universal design for learning or this particular pillar of multiple means of engagement, I would love to hear from you. You can drop a comment below. You can shoot me an email, victoria at victoriabowler.com, or you can find me on Instagram. I am at victoriabowler. Thank you so much for listening and happy teaching. <laughs>